Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we have part two of Basketball Butterfly Effect, where we bring in basketball savant Arya Shirazi to discuss how the NBA would have been different if a consequential draft move or trade was not made. What would the Basketball Butterfly Effect be? And this week, we're going to talk about a moment that set it off in a way that rippled for years. We take you to the 1996 draft when the Charlotte Hornets, with the 13th pick, selected teenager Kobe Bean Bryant out of Lower Marion High School in Philadelphia. Then in a draft day trade that would change the course of NBA history, they dealt him to the LA Lakers in exchange for center Vlade Divac. Now the story of how this came about is a podcast on its own, and I'm sure it has been. And that's also not our focus here. Our focus is what happens if Charlotte in 1996 says, Jerry West, you are full of Franks and beans. We are keeping Kobe. So we know what we don't get if Charlotte keeps Kobe. We don't get 20 years of Kobe in LA. We don't get the five rings in the same way. We don't get a definer of basketball culture for a generation that certainly is partly because of his unreal skill level, but also, of course, was aided by that L.A. spotlight. But what do we get? To help me answer that question is Arya Shirazi. Arya, how you doing, sir? I'm doing good, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Oh, man, it's awesome. So. First and foremost, I want to give you some space to lay down some knowledge on us for the very basic question. What comes into your mind in terms of what happens if Charlotte keeps Kobe Bryant? Well, uh, you know, you and I have long talked about how uh, in the NBA, a single transaction, be it a uh, free agent signing or a trade, or an injury that occurs at a certain time uh, has a ripple effect, or is, as we've said, a butterfly effect that really reverberates throughout the league and affects league history uh, for you know for for years or decades to come, based on that single move. And that move doesn't even necessarily have to involve a franchise player or even an all-star to uh, affect the course of a lot of other teams throughout the league. Uh, In this case, as you said in your intro, uh, we are talking about the very top. We're talking about a trade involving a pretty much unanimous top 10 all-time NBA player. uh, And uh, for a a very serviceable center. (laughs) Yes. Like a, a, a top 10 player for a very nice center. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, this train of thought can go in so many different ways because it starts with uh, what if Kobe had not been traded on draft night to the Lakers? So he never goes to L.A. uh, and uh, reasonable to assume that they may very well not get their five championships that they got with him uh, on the team. And also, how long does he stay in Charlotte? And since we're talking about what ifs, those what ifs can have can go in a million different directions. But really, we can start by 
talking about if the 1996 Charlotte Hornets keep uh, a Kobe Bryant right out of high school as opposed to dealing him. Let me jump in real quick. Uh, Just to give people some background, I think that's very important to say that back then, if you're a high school student coming right into the pros, they didn't just throw you to the wolves. There was almost like this built-in prejudgment back then that, oh, your first year, we're going to take you really slow off the bench. And you saw this with Kobe. You saw this with Tracy McGrady. And so Kobe only averaged 7.7 7.7 points per game his rookie year. Only time in his career he ever averaged anything close to that number. So people, um, I think, got to get in their heads that if he goes to Charlotte, I don't think anyway, you should tell me if you disagree, he's immediately in the rotation kicking ass. Uh, no, I, I think that you're very correct about that when you talk about the landscape. And actually, Kobe was the second. Kevin Garnett had come out of high school the year before. Uh, so there, he was really the only precedent for this. Uh, players like McGrady and Amari Stoudemire uh, uh, you know, all came after the original crop of Garnett and then a year later, Kobe and Jermaine O'Neal. So really this was, uh, and with Garnett, he... Uh, had gotten off to a very slow start his rookie year, had come on on a lottery-bound Timberwolves team in the second half, and had really kind of proved a lot of doubters wrong. And going into that offseason, his name was kind of, his stock was on the rise. But then again, Garnett was seven feet uh, while looking very much 18, 19 years old. Kobe was 6'6", looking very much 18 years old physically. So he was kind of subject to a different level of scrutiny being a guard coming right out of high school. He couldn't even hang his hat on being seven feet. Uh, So the Charlotte Hornets at that time were kind of a middle of the road team uh, in the middle of that decade. I believe they had finished right around 500 in 1996 and barely missed out on the eighth seed in the playoffs, uh, it would have been them getting swept by the Bulls uh, rather than whoever wound up in number eight. And uh, but and during that off season, uh, Larry Johnson, who had really been the face of the franchise or one of the faces of the franchise since he had been picked first overall uh, a few years earlier, was traded for Anthony Mason to the Knicks. Mm. Uh, a move that as a New Yorker and a lifelong Knicks fan, I certainly felt as though Charlotte got the better of that deal. Oh, definitely. Uh, Because we knew Larry Johnson as at this point in his career is kind of hobbled, you know, no prematurely hobbled. Yeah. He was still averaging 20 a game, but this was somebody who, when he came into the league, number one, you're thinking he's more like an average 27 a game like that level of talent, but his back went out. But then to his credit, he became this incredibly crafty player uh, who was scoring 20 a game. So, you know, him for Mason, I think some people had your reaction, but I think you were a bit of an outlier in seeing what I think a lot of people didn't see, which was that Mason had the goods. Yeah. uh, And, you know, we had certainly seen that in New York, 
uh, playing under Riley and then Jeff Van Gundy. And in Charlotte, which didn't quite have the talent level and didn't have the championship aspirations that the Knicks did at that time, the ball was almost immediately put into Mace's hands, and he really became the player that myself and a lot of other Mace fans kind of knew that he could become. And I thought his best years in the NBA were definitely those years that he played as kind of the as kind of the uh, the do it all point power forward for Charlotte. So who does? Oh, by the way, we should give a a, a tip of the hat to a very unsuccessful Knicks coach who really deserves the credit for really putting the ball in Mason's hand, and that was Don Nelson. Well, absolutely, of course. Uh, you know, Nelly Took was it from of... the Paul Pressey model from when he was coaching the Bucks. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I, you know, Nelly's magical reign at the Garden only lasted about 50 games, uh, but they were glorious. Uh, I... Yeah. Uh, I was so happy when the Knicks uh, signed Nelly, and I knew that he was going to recognize Mace as the man to lead them. And of course he did, and uh, and they were really, really fun to watch. And of course, Nelly and Mace were, were too beautiful for, uh, for, for the corporate uh, entity of, of the Knicks at that time. So of course it was fleeting, but it was really quite poetic uh, during the brief time that it lasted. Uh, but Charlotte also, their main man on offense at that time was Glenn Rice, uh, mm -hmm. a ball player I love. Uh, I know we're both big fans of him ever since his championship days as a Wolverine. And uh, and Glenn was really coming into his own as a number one option on a playoff team. So, yeah. so that was really uh, where Charlotte was at when Kobe was drafted and yeah. uh, I'm going to just... take, can I make one quick point just that um, we, we should also tie together that Mason coming to Charlotte unlocked Glenn Rice in a way he hadn't been unlocked in his entire career. So he goes from a 21 guy to a 27 guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wrecking stuff. So how does uh, Glenn Rice taking a leap and Anthony Mason leading the ball up the court how do they integrate a Kobe Bean Bryant? Well, you, you had asked before, uh, coming out of high school as a guard, as an 18-year-old guard, uh, it, you know, it would have been reasonable to assume that Kobe would have had to pay his dues both in practice and in game time. But I can remember the first time I ever saw Kobe play early in that 96 season. Uh, obviously, 1996, media-wise and internet information-wise was not what it was to become, even just a few years later at the turn of the century. So I had barely kind of heard of Kobe the way that I heard of LeBron a few years later, uh, kind of inundated with LeBron stuff. It was still the 90s. So, okay, you heard, you know, you, you know you'd hear about which top high school preps, which college they were going to go to. Uh and Kobe was going to go right to the pros, but I had kind of barely heard about him. So he was the really good high school guy that was going to go to the pros like Kevin Garnett had been the year before. And he steps into a Laker team that has just acquired Shaq. And uh, I never loved Shaq's game uh, and was irritated by the way he left Orlando to go to the Lakers 
So I was definitely rooting against that Lakers team uh, by virtue of them having Shaquille. Uh, so I was pretty much rooting against them any game that I watched. And I remember seeing Kobe early in that season. Uh, and as you said, he was coming off the bench. He averaged single figures that year. But it took me about three plays to watch Kobe to say to myself and possibly out loud to whoever was watching the game with me at the time, uh, this guy's kind of unguardable. And that is, and he was still learning the game and took a couple of years to learn it. But Kobe was not Kobe by accident. He did not build that career by accident. Uh, I am infamous among people who know me for being a very poor scout. I very often think that great player, that players in college that I really like are going to be great pros and they're not. And very often players who come into the league, uh, I don't think they have the makings of a good pro and they wind up with a Hall of Fame career. So I am not a great evaluator of pro talent. Uh, but the minute I saw Kobe, I was like, this guy is an unbelievable guard even among the best players in the world that he's playing against so the reason I launched into that was to say I have to believe Kobe would have stepped uh, by by training camp by the end of training camp Dave Cowens the coach of the Hornets I think absolutely must have recognized what kind of 18 year old baller he was and I can't see him not playing a major role on that team, which didn't have the depth of talent that the Lakers did, even at that time, uh, stepping in and getting major minutes. And the prospect of Kobe playing alongside a right in their prime, Glenn Rice and Anthony Mason, is an incredibly tantalizing trio to play for a championship. How do you feel about that? Whew. Uh, still such a thin team. Um, they would need a center who could pass because that's one of the things that made the Hornets such a surprise team that year was Divots. And so it was Mason to Divots to Rice. And I remember Sports Illustrated writing that the best front court in the NBA was in Charlotte. And so this was, this was no small thing. So... This is tough because Cowens was an old school guy and by all accounts, you know, kind of dickish towards the new guys. So with that effect, would he be like, and you said it too, Kobe had, this is one of the things that Kobe makes is so great about him. Kobe had the stigma of being the first high school wing to come out. What does Cowens think about that? Does he think who is this whippersnapper or maybe he thinks, you know, what matters is that this is another worldly talent. If he gets that it's another worldly talent, and if Kobe gets in there, then I think absolutely within a few years, the Charlotte Hornets are making deep, deep playoff runs in an Eastern Conference. Let's not forget that sent an eighth seed Knicks to the finals in 99. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it wasn't too impressive in 2000 or 2001, you know, with, with the 76ers and the Pacers getting there. I mean, teams that were kind of chum for those Lakers teams. I could see the Hornets going deep in the Eastern Conference. So that's how I would answer that question. 
absolutely agree. I mean, you actually uh, made a key point. Clearly, if the Hornets keep Kobe, then they don't acquire Vlade, who is traded for Kobe. And as you said, uh, wound up being a big part of the Hornets becoming a surprise team in the East. But we were just talking about Mason being a front court playmaker. I actually think that uh, that that lessens the necessity for what Vlade brought. And while Cowan certainly was an old school guy uh, who probably would have uh, stereotyped Bryant as a whippersnapper coming into the team, again, I think Kobe was such a one of a kind player and you know, couldn't help but display that from the start that uh, that he, uh, Cowens would have gotten over any uh, any preconditioned judgments that he had. And granted, yes, I'm not, you know, three players does not necessarily a championship team make. And you were correct when you said uh, coming out of the Bulls breaking up their second three P. The Nets were kind of a free, uh, the, pardon me, the East was kind of a free for all for the next few years. Uh, the Nets being a team that wound up going to back to back finals appearances as an unbelievably weak yeah. uh, finals representative and getting uh, really uh, their asses handed to them, I think, both years in a row by the Lakers and the Spurs. Uh, I look at that Charlotte team we're talking about with a few years to build around those three guys. And as Mason and Rice get older and age out of their primes a little, Kobe is coming right into his as the best player in the league, or at least the most unguardable scorer in the league. And I would, I would think that Charlotte would be building a contending team around them accordingly, but it really does open things up even more into an East that is already open. I mean, even if Bryant is in Charlotte, uh, the Knicks might still make it to the finals in that wonky, uh, strikey 99 year. And then uh, Indiana might still emerge as the best team in the East the following year. And Iverson might still be unstoppable in the conference the year after, but it is certainly adding one, uh, one other potential X factor with maybe the top tier talent of any of those teams into the mix. I think looking at the other conference is where history really begins to be altered. If we subtract Kobe from the Lakers, and as you said, uh, he does not have that 20 year career with LA and L.A. begins the Shaq era uh, without him. Yeah. And with a team looking to contend with Eddie Jones, Nick Van Exel. And, I mean, I'd like to think Vlade. I'd, you know, you look at Shaq and Vlade, yeah. and uh, offensively, those guys can really complement each other. Absolutely. Actually, in the most kind of ideal way, how those two guys' offensive games could flow at both being seven feet. And uh, while Vlade would have struggled guarding fours the way that he always struggled guarding fives, 
Shaq at that time, still being in his 20s, uh, was actually still a real force as a rim protector and an intimidating guy to have on your back line. So I think having uh, a spry O'Neal behind him could have covered up uh, many of, of Vlade's defensive shortcomings. That being said, in all likelihood, Vlade would have been traded for someone else. Yeah. And that's, and that's where the butterfly really starts kind of extending its wings in a lot of different directions because you look at the West where really it was the Shaq Kobe Lakers at the top of the conversation for the next eight, nine years. Uh, the possibilities of what can emerge and some of those really, really strong, fun teams that we liked in the West that could never quite overcome the Lakers uh, really without that obstacle might find themselves uh, playing for a championship. The first that comes to uh, many people would instantly think of the Rick Adelman Kings, but I much quicker think of the Portland Trailblazers. Interesting. Uh, before, though, we get to the West, I'm just going to paint a scenario for you and you tell me if you think this is a realistic butterfly effect. All right. You know how it's been often been said that if it wasn't for David Robinson or Tim Duncan, the Spurs would have left San Antonio long ago. Like they just wouldn't have been able to make a go of it as a franchise. It's just too small a market and everything changed because of those two big men. What if... Kobe goes to Charlotte, lights it up so much that they get money for a new arena. Heaven and earth is moved because the Kobe Charlotte Hornets is becoming this generational force. So there's no move to New Orleans where they were the New Orleans Hornets. And then Hurricane Katrina hits. How's that for a butterfly effect? So the Hornets have to go play in Oklahoma City which was used by Clay Bennett and the Seattle Sonics stalking horses from Oklahoma City to say, we're going to now move for the team here. And guess what, NBA? We have proven that Oklahoma City can host a team. And therefore, and that was critical to the Sonics move. So if Kobe stays in Charlotte, and of course, then the Charlotte Hornets came back as an expansion team, blah, 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 starting, you know, the Charlotte Bobcats, which was just unfortunate. But the idea of Kobe saving the original Charlotte team, could that even be a fact where we don't have the Thunder and we have the Sonics where they're supposed to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. It extends that far, not hmm. franchise-altering in terms of, Franchises possibly not relocating and current franchises not existing. Absolutely. You picked a perfect example in San Antonio. Another I can think of is Utah. Another small market long thought of as uh, the last preferred destination for NBA players. Uh, if the Jazz don't have Stockton and Malone, that success and that brand uh, is Utah kind of the, the, are the Jazz the institution in that state that they are largely based on their two decades of success, uh, much like San Antonio? So I, I think what you are saying uh, makes 100% sense. 
sense, a player like Kobe, uh, a, a city transforming player like him, whatever success he brought, whether it was a championship, whether it was finals appearances, or whether it was just bringing an excitement level to Charlotte through pro basketball that they hadn't ever seen, uh, it makes it very likely that that is not a penny-pinching, struggling franchise who moves to New Orleans. And then when Katrina hits in 05, there is no New Orleans franchise to have to temporarily play in Oklahoma City, thus creating the blueprint and kind of the justification, as you said, for the uh, the Sonics being stolen from Seattle. So, yes, I think that it absolutely uh, extends that high. If Kobe had not only not been traded to the Lakers, but had built a career with the Charlotte Hornets, uh, there's a very real chance that the Oklahoma City Thunder don't exist. Amazing. Uh, and here's another question. Uh, my, 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 my kid Jacob uh, has something to say about this. And Jacob said, you also sort of have to factor in that Kobe's mindset has always been big market. So how often, how long does he stay in Charlotte before trying to agitate for a trade? Like, how long do you even get him in Charlotte? And I was trying to remember how long those rookie contracts were back then. Because remember, of course, as you well know, they're, they're, they're priced in, basically. Um, not like the olden days. 15 years for $60 million. They were like, oh, my right. God. Right. Uh, no, I, and that is, we can really never know, of course. I mean, Kobe also being an extreme competitor uh, i would hope that if his charlotte hornets had played a successful brand of ball meaning winning playoff rounds through the first few years of his career he would have the pride to adopt that team as his franchise as he wound up doing the lakers then again as you were saying charlotte ain't no la and he, a, a, a few different try, times, tried to force himself out of L.A. So, uh, so yeah, it's not like that relationship that? was was two decades of total harmony and bliss. So, yes, it is more than likely that he does not spend 20 years in Charlotte. Does he bolt for a bigger market uh, the first time his contract comes up? Maybe. So then we're talking, what, 2000 or so? the same year that he wins a championship for the first time. And then, you know, wherever he goes, then that, you know, uh, that move cascades into the rest of the league. And a lot of, a lot of the league's moves are reacting to whatever free agent decision Kobe makes. So, uh, but I do believe that uh, the Charlotte Hornets would have that window uh, in maybe years three and four in his career to possibly emerge as an Eastern Conference finalist, maybe making it harder for him to turn down the max extension that he could only receive from that team. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, does Shaq 
is there a chance, this is the other ripple effect, because we haven't asked ourselves if Shaq necessarily maybe doesn't sign with the Lakers without a young, promising Kobe Bean Bryant. No, I think he signed before the draft. Did he? I can't I remember. think he did, too. I don't think that was a factor. I think something else that's very interesting in the history of the Lakers and in this topic of discussion was Shaq signs with the Lakers in the summer of 96, expecting to play with Magic. Magic Johnson had come ah. back in the second half of the 96 season, and while he was not the Magic of five, six, seven years earlier, he was still uh, enough of a, of a difference maker going along with the young core that they had that Shaq specifically cited his presence as a primary reason for making the controversial decision to bolt Orlando. And about a week or two later, I think it was right, very shortly afterwards, uh, Magic says something to the effect of, I'm flattered by that, but actually I'm, I didn't have that good a time and I'm retiring again. So, so Shaq's first move into LA is just a bit of a stumble uh, then again, he is joining a promising young team uh, with Van Exel, Eddie Jones, Cedric Sabalos, uh, some some solid young ball players. But I think without, obviously, we don't know what the Lakers would have gotten for Vlade. Having Shaq would have made them a very, very enticing free agent destination for a second superstar, uh, along with the Lakers always being one of the most attractive destinations uh, for top free agents. So the Lakers almost definitely within a year or two of Shaq being there would have uh, bolstered up to make a run at the uh, the run at representing the West in the finals, but nobody was Kobe. Nobody they would have gotten would have been Kobe. So what it does in the West is the East already was fairly open. The West wasn't. It really became the Shaq and Kobe Lakers, and it took them three years to be the best. But once they were, there was only one year in the next five or six that they played together where they didn't make the championship. And we had briefly mentioned the Portland Trailblazers, the Sacramento Kings as top teams considered championship contenders who were thwarted by the Lakers. Steve Nash's Phoenix Suns, definitely another one that we could see. Absolutely. Uh, if not having a ring, having at least one finals appearance. The other side of that, though, is it is possible that the primary beneficiary of Shaq and Kobe never teaming together were Pop Spurs. Mm. Because they were always lurking. They were the team that right in the middle of that Lakers run uh, unseated them one year and won a championship uh, before going on and winning several more. But it is also possible with as much as many talented teams as there were in the West in the late 90s going into the first part of 
the 21st century, it is possible that instead of having six rings, Pop and Duncan might have eight. Wow. Or something. And they uh, never want a back-to-back, which I know, uh, you know, gives Pop a little bit, makes him a little bit of an itchy onion. Um, <laughs> yo, this has been awesome, Shiraz. Are we missing anything? I, I, I don't think we're missing anything. Again, I think that really it... The Shaq and Kobe Lakers, for those years that they played together, the cha- the three championships, the four championship appearances, the acknowledgement of every team at that time, that really in order to make a run at the finals, you had to take certain reactive steps to be able to play that Lakers team. The fact that they went through a revolving door of uh, of third bananas from Glenn Rice, coincidentally, to uh, Mitch Richmond was attempted, Ron Harper, Robert Ory, a bunch of players that that came and went, but Shaq and Kobe being the constants. And then once it was broken up, Shaq winning a ring in Miami and Kobe winning two more with the Lakers. So Shaquille and Kobe cast such a shadow over the NBA for a legitimate 15 year period that all and even with their individual accomplishments Shaq's both before and after playing with Kobe it was their years of almost invincibility that really they carried with them to their other stops and uh Basketball history, as we've been saying, is affected at the highest level, both in terms of possible franchise uh, franchises not being created or franchises uh, still existing to this day because of those that domino effect of moves and uh, teams and players and Hall of Famers who wound up never getting a ring possibly getting a ring amen and on that note Arya shirazi basketball savant i really do appreciate your time man thank you so much i appreciate you having me dave as always it's a blast basketball butterfly effect part two in the books we'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast the nation magazine We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words. Okay, look, if retired NFL offensive lineman Michael Orr had his life rights stolen by Sean and Leanne Tui, people who claim to be his adopted parents and did so in the book and film The Blind Side, 
the Matuis have enacted a rancid, rancid grift. A 14-page complaint filed in Tennessee says that contrary to the narrative that became a best-selling book and hit movie, that the Tuies never adopted Orr. Instead, three months after he turned 18, the Tuies tricked him into signing a document that made him his conservators, leaving him with fewer legal rights than a child. If the charges are true, then the book and movie, which grossed $300 million and helped win Sandra Bullock an Oscar, was part of a racket that leveraged white America's love affair with itself. The author of the book about Orr and the Tuies, sales machine, Michael Moneyball Lewis, has answered some uncomfortable questions in recent weeks as to how he was duped. Of course, he's answered them by dumping on Michael Orr and defending both the book and the Tuies. This shouldn't be too surprising. It was Lewis who spun this piece of Caucasian catnip, the tale of the white Southern Christian Tui family who adopted troubled teen Michael Orr, presented in the book and film as a simple-minded behemoth, and turned him into a wealthy football player. Now, Orr is saying in court documents that he discovered several months ago that he had never actually been adopted by the Tuies. It was a sham perpetrated without his consent in order to get him to sign over his life's rights for nothing. They were not parents in any legal or moral sense. They were conservators, no better than Britney Spears' dad. For the film, the Tuies two children got a $225,000 payment and 2.5% of the net proceeds for having their likeness portrayed. That worked out to almost $5 million per kid, or allegedly got nothing. With the film deal, Sean and Leanne Tui tipped their hands as to whom they really considered family. Yet this alleged swindle is only an extension of what is so grotesque about the blind side. It's a feel-good story that even without this lawsuit is hyper-exploitative trash. The smash hit starring Sandra Bullock as the white woman with a heart of gold was a smash because Hollywood rarely fails with this trope which tells white America that it is, despite historic evidence to the contrary, morally righteous. And they are righteous because they've accepted Rudyard Kipling's white man's burden to civilize the poor and downtrodden. This has been used by liberal Hollywood since at least 1939, when Scarlett O'Hara let Mammy Sasser out of the goodness of her heart and gone with the wind. The list of white savior prestige films is long, Mississippi Burning, Dangerous Minds, and the fulsomely praised documentary about school reform, Waiting for Superman, which is total trash, come to mind. All of these movies sell the same tired fiction. When the Blind Side film was released in 2009, the allegedly slow Orr spoke out against his depiction and refused to do publicity. Few noticed or wrote about it at the time. Orr may not have even known about the fake adoption then but he knew the one thing about this movie that the Academy did not. It was trash. The emerging truth about the blind side feats neatly within our cultural moment. We are living in an era when people are realizing that waiting for a Superman is a fool's pursuit and that people who present themselves as white saviors are more often than not white beneficiaries of black pain. If the charges are true and the court documents are damning, then maybe this will be a turning point. Maybe even white audiences will stop believing in this trope. There already is a growing understanding among young white activists about the difference between allyship and paternalism, 
the importance of creating space for others to speak and lead, and the understanding that the white savior concept is a dangerous myth that has hurt far more than it has ever helped. Lewis was wrong to valorize this narrative. The Tuies were wrong to exploit it, which they did whether these charges are proven or not. And Orr is right to take his name back. He's a hell of a lot smarter than Lewis or the Tuies have presented, and that may prove to be their undoing. The flip side of white saviorship is white underestimation. The Tuies underestimated Michael Orr, and now the world knows it. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Arya Shirazi, basketball savant. Thank you so much to David Tigaboo, the producer of this podcast. Thank you so much to The Nation magazine doing the most important journalism in the United States. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.